0: I did forget uh, one announcement, if, uh, if, if this looks like an earring that belongs to you, I, I don't really need it up on the podium, if you want it, you can, you can have it back. Am I on? I'm on here. Is it going? Okay. Um, there we go, I, I uh, uh, really appreciate Trail Life and what they uh, have been doing through the year and, and I think it's a tremendous program. Uh, you do have to be a little careful if they're doing archery. I've, I've got a couple arrows I found up up in my yard this week. Uh, <laughs> not quite sure where they'll go, but it, it's good stuff. <laughs> let's uh, let's pray, Father God. We just thank you for the opportunity to worship you in so many ways this morning through song, through giving, through um, prayers. Uh, God, we just ask now as we come to your word that you would you would lead and guide us, uh, teach us. Um, We know that in Your Word, You have given us everything we need for life and godliness, and we just pray You would strengthen us uh, for the days ahead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I I got a question for you. Have you ever been in charge of um, some activity or or group of people? And and you know right from the start that no matter what you did, uh, there were going to be a certain amount of people within that group that would be disappointed. I mean, if if you pick option A, you know, there'd be some of them that would be jumping for joy and giving out high fives and talking about how great this is. But at the same time, there would be, you know, a segment of them that would be rolling their eyes and, and uh, uh, muttering under their breath, you know, about how much this stinks. So then if you switch and you pick option B, some of the mutterers might turn jubilant and, and be excited about that, while some who were cheering just moments ago would now be unhappy and, and uh, complaining. Uh, you know, if, if you're a parent and, and you have more than one kid, uh, you know what this is like. That happens all the time. But if you've been part of any group, uh, this is one of those things that's just bound to happen. I remember when I was leading uh, the senior high camp, Camp Halawasa, several, quite a few years ago, and I told the kids that uh, uh, after lunch, we were going to be going out to Hippie Hollow to jump off the cliffs. And man, a bunch of them were excited about that, pretty happy about that. Uh, You know, they were fist pumping and chattering about how great it was. But then there were the lips of others who were moaning and complaining and all they could see was the downside of it oh the water there's so cold i don't you can't swim in that water and and cliffs are, are for, like, looking at, not for jumping off of. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, the hike down is a long hike down, and, and it's even longer hiking back out, and, and there's poison ivy everywhere. No, oh, I don't want to go do this. And, and, and there's this negative stuff uh, that goes on. And as a leader, of course, I, I mean, I knew that would happen. I, I knew some would be happy and, and some would be uh, disappointed. Which, by the way, is why in youth group and in Camp Halawasa I, I instituted my no whining or complaining rule. Uh, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy, and so those that don't like it, there's no whining, no complaining. That was one of our rules because, you know, that negative muttering that just kind of tends to bring down a whole group, and so we just do away with it. You, you know, that's, that's not allowed. Um, you wish. As a leader, you wish you could find something that you, you, you knew nobody would be disappointed. Everybody would be thrilled about that. And just to let you in on a, a, a little secret here, preachers are the same way when they're planning on you know what they're going to do next. Uh, they know that you know, there are some things that won't necessarily uh, appeal to everybody. It, we're we're going to start a new series uh, today. And it's going to be a lot shorter than the than previous series of following Jesus in a messy world. I, uh, I, I can guarantee you that. Uh, and, and this is one of those series, as I was preparing it, I knew that there would be some people that would be disappointed. We're, we're going to take a, a look at Daniel, one of the Old Testament prophets. And as soon as some people hear Daniel, they think, oh boy, we're going to do a study of prophecy and end times and and all that kind of stuff. I can hardly wait. And then there's other people that say, oh no, prophecy. I I could care less about that. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to do that. And and so I know, know there's going to be some people that are disappointed. However, the disappointed group might not be the one you think of because see, what we're actually going to do is a character study of Daniel the man rather than a study of his book and his prophecies. Our focus is is going to be on him and a few of his friends uh, along the way as well. And, And I'm calling the series Living with Character and Conviction. And I'm really excited about this study. I mean, Daniel was a man who was committed to following God, but he was living and going to school and and working in a very secular society. And maybe secular is not exactly the right word because, you know, it was okay to be religious. Being spiritual was, was fine as long as you didn't let that uh, spirituality, that religion interfere with your work or, or getting along with everybody else in society. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We're going to look at uh, several events in Daniel's life. And uh, even though these events happened uh, 2,623 years ago, give give or take a couple days, uh, uh, they are incredibly relevant and up-to-date for us today. And and most of the time, we're going to be uh, looking at a big chunk of Scripture. If you're familiar with Daniel, typically there is one event per chapter. And so we'll be moving rather rapidly uh, through the book. And again, just so I'm clear up front, because I know this is going to disappoint a certain segment of people, we are not going to be uh, doing a detailed study of prophecy and trying to figure out all the minutia about the end times. Instead, we're going to focus on the character and convictions of Daniel, because you know what? Those things are transferable to us in our life today. So as I said, most Sundays, uh, we're going to be looking at like a whole chapter of Daniel or at least a big chunk of it. That will not be the case today because in order to understand Daniel, we first uh, need to get a a good picture of what was happening in his world and in his life so that we know uh, what it was like for him and and we can uh, build that connection between himself and us. And so that means we need to start with a bit of a history lesson, which I know really excites most everybody here. But if it doesn't excite you, no whining or complaining, uh, that's, that's the rule. So uh, we'll get started here. Uh, it begins with one simple truth. God is a God for all people. Right? We, we understand that. We know that God is a God for all people. And that can be seen right from His original design, right? He created uh, Adam and Eve and from Adam and Eve the entire world would be populated. And, and so it is just one people. Eventually uh, peop- uh, the population would have grown. They would have moved all over over the world uh, just as they had. And, and of course over time uh, variations in skin pigmentation and musculature and, and and and, um, uh, bone uh, mass and all those types of things would have created uh, the differences we see in, in, in people today. All of that would have happened, but we would have still been one people because there would have been nothing to divide us. Without sin in the world, there would have been nothing to divide us. But because sin did enter the world, Fear and animosity and greed and pride and lust for power and all these other kinds of things divided people. And competition between these different groups of people who would who would uh, band together that multiplied after the tower of Babel if you 're familiar with that incident when when God caused the confusion of languages but brought about all the different uh, languages in the world and, and therefore the people that spoke the same language grouped together and then all these nations these Individual groups began starting from there with an us versus them mentality because, hey, we're better than them and and we can do that. And and so now you had divisions that way. But even within the, the same language groups, people couldn't get along. Just like today, right? I read in the news this week about a 14-year-old girl who punched a waitress in the mouth because uh, when the waitress brought back the change, she brought back the wrong change. And so the mom started screaming at the waitress, and the waitress said, "Uh, please, ma'am, calm down. And when she said that, the 14-year-old girl jumped up and said, don't talk to my mom that way, and punched her in the mouth. People speaking the same language can't get along. Why? Why? Because of sin. And and the sin uh, created all these divisions and these divisions created all these different people, groups, and nations and all this kind of stuff. But over all of this, we need to understand God is still the God for all people. But He chose to work out His plans for salvation and, and for redemption through one specific nation. And he didn't just look down on earth and randomly pick some nation that was already there. He decided to start from scratch and and make a a new nation. And so he picked one man, Abram, who he changed his name to Abraham, and and he decided to use him. And in his old age, Abraham and his wife Sarah had a a son and uh, this was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Uh, his son, Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, uh, had sons and, and uh Isaac, I'm sorry, Isaac, there Isaac, and then Isaac had sons, Jacob, and, and, and Jacob had a lot of sons, and, and the clan started growing, and as the clan was growing, uh, they unfortunately made a detour, ended up in Egypt for 400 years as slaves, but God used that time to just multiply the nation, and, and after a little over 400 years, when, when God sent Moses to lead them out of captivity, they were a people that were millions of people people strong, this huge nation, and he promised to bring them to a land that was their promised land, and, and he was going to lead them and guide them in all this, and he brought them to the land, and what he set up there was what was, we would call a theocracy. That's the style of government uh, that he uh, would use, and uh, the theocracy means that God w- would be the head of the government. He would be the one uh, to lead and guide them. And um, he told them right from the very beginning how it would work. If you would follow what I command, if you do what I tell you to do and obey, then I'm going to bring a peace into your land and into your lives and health and strength and prosperity and and all these goodness and blessings to you. But if you do not follow what I say, well, then uh, he would bring plagues. He'd bring trouble to try to remind them, hey, you need to obey me, you need to follow me, and if they persisted in that rebellion, it would get worse until finally in Leviticus, as he's given them the law, he said, this is what would happen, you, the people, you, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out the sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Not a pretty picture, so you'd think that would be, you know, good motivation uh, to follow and obey God. But it wasn't very long after forming the nations that the people already started uh, whining and complaining and saying, you know what? We're not like the other nations around us. We want a king. We want an earthly king because God, we can't see you. And, And so even though they were told that this would result in problems and trouble, they persisted in that and God gave them an earthly king and only a couple of kings down the line through sin and rebellion, the nation split into two. And, and you had the larger northern kingdom. They maintained the name Israel. Uh, the smaller southern kingdom went by the name Judah. And uh, you'll see that as you're reading through the Old Testament. And God's because he loved them, he kept sending them prophets. He sent to both nations, prophets, telling them, you need to repent, you need to turn from your wicked ways. If you repent, I'll forgive you, and I will bring these goodness and these blessings. But if you persist in this, all of these things I said will, will happen. And, and sure enough, they, they uh, persisted in it. In the northern kingdom uh, Uh, persisted even more and so in 722 BC he sent the world power Assyria to come down and wipe them out and Assyria was a very cruel uh, nation the capital of Nineveh uh, and and they did horrible things to the countries that they uh, overran and their their MO was to come in wipe out everything in the country destroy everything take all of the people split them up and scatter them amongst all the other nations that they had conquered so that they couldn't be together as a group of people and to leave that land barren until other people would drift in and, and take it over. And that's what that's what Assyria did. And uh, the southern nation of Judah, it lasted a little bit longer because it had a few good kings mixed in here and there that would, would tell the people we need to repent and draw them back. But most of the time, they had rotten kings who led them into sin, and rebellion and again you would think they saw what happened to the northern kingdom they saw god's judgments coming true you would think that would be enough to motivate them to follow and and god sent a prophet isaiah at the time that the northern kingdom was wiped out isaiah came to the king of judah hezekiah and, and to the nation and he gave them a very specific prophecy uh, he said, you saw what happened there? Look, the same thing's going to happen to you. It says in Isaiah, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. I mean, that's a very specific prophecy. He's telling them, this is who's going to do it. And, and at the time he gave that prophecy, Babylon was just kind of a little neighborhood bully nation uh, over there in the, in, in the Near East. Uh, Assyria was the world power. I mean, that's who everybody was afraid of. I mean, who's Babylon? They're nobody. But uh, by 605 uh, B.C., all of that had changed. King nabal uh, had uh, made Babylon strong. He started um, conquering the small nations around him. And when his military might was enough, he went up to Assyria, up to Nineveh, the capital city, and, and wiped out Assyria and, and was taking them over. And Assyria even had called in the second biggest uh, power, Egypt, uh, to come and help them. And uh, that kind of ticked the Babylonians off. So they said, oh, yeah, well, we're going to go down to Egypt, too, and we'll wipe you out. And so they went down to Egypt, a famous Battle of Carchemish uh, that they did there, and and took them uh, out as well. And Babylon became the unquestioned power of the world. And while all those momentous events were going on, there was a boy named Daniel who was growing up in his parents' house in the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was filled with fear. Who would Babylon conquer next? What was going to happen to us? And that that brings us up to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Judah had persisted in their sin and rebellion against God. And now God was bringing to pass the judgment that He had foretold, that that He had said Would happen. Hundreds of years earlier, he had predicted. In fact, a hundred years, he predicted exactly who would do it. And it happened just as he said. And you know, as, as you read that verse, you're starting this book of Daniel and you read that verse, a person might be tempted to just kind of gloss over uh, or not think too much about a statement like in the third year of, you know, such and such a king, you know, this and that happened or that kind of thing. But, but we need to stop and think about that because that's really a powerful statement. That, that's a, a positive thing. It reminds us that the Bible is not some philosophical, spiritual mutterings and musings of some tripped-out mystic, as so many religious writings in the world are. A date and a time anchors this text in history. These are real and verifiable events and happenings. Maybe you've heard before the idea that Christianity is a a leap of blind faith. That's all it is. And and I think that comes about from a total misunderstanding of what the word faith really means. And, And unfortunately, I think it also comes about because too many Christians use it in the wrong way. You know, people come with legitimate questions. I don't get this. I don't understand that. And they'll smile and say, oh, you just have to have faith as if you're not supposed to think uh, or reason through or understand these things. Uh, we need to understand how, how faith works and, and, and what it is. And, and we understand faith in the other aspects of life because we all use faith for a lot of different things, right? Take a picture this way. Uh, let's say that you've uh, just been told that you've got uh, bad heart disease and you need a very risky surgery uh, for your, for your health, for your life. Because you happen to be independently wealthy, you have the opportunity to, to investigate all of the very best surgeons, heart surgeons and doctors and anesthesiologists, and, and, and you research that and you assemble the very best team that you can. After all that research, after all that study, you still have to have faith be put under and go under the knife of that doctor's hands. Now, it's a faith that is based on the evidence of competency and skill and this type of thing, but it's still faith. Christianity is based on faith, but it's a faith that is built upon evidence. There is a historical Jesus. He lived and died and rose again, and and there are evidences to support those things, but it still requires you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But it is far from a a blind leap of faith. It is a faith built upon reasonable evidences and, and intellectual confirmations. I mean, that's why God Himself, through the prophet Isaiah, said, Come. Come now and let us reason. Come now and let us reason. Think. Use your mind. This makes sense. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like, well, how that can that be? Right? There, there's got to be a way that that happens. And he says, it makes sense, this plan that I have. It's based on reason. So now back to the book of Daniel. These, these things that are given, these are, these, this is a date and time. This is anchored in history. These are not just stories with a moral to them like Aesop's fables or, or something like that. These are historical events that teach us something about how God intervenes in history and how we should and can live as a result of a God who is in control of history. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but I I want to bring out one other point with this verse. It says, uh, you're reading Daniel here, and it says that these events happened in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. But there was another prophet who was alive and prophesying and working at that exact same time. His name was Jeremiah. And, and in Jeremiah's account, you read up in chapter 25, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And then he goes on for the next 11 verses to, to describe the the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the overthrow of Jerusalem. And, and critics uh, have quickly jumped upon that discrepancy and said, aha, that that just shows you uh, how unreliable the Bible is. Daniel says three years, Jeremiah says four years. Obviously those things aren't the same, they're contradictory, they're mistakes and and if they're making mistakes here in the Bible, the whole Bible's full of mistakes, you just can't trust anything. And on and on it goes. And for a lot of years there weren't, wasn't any really good answer to that particular criticism because, yeah, Daniel does say year three and Jeremiah does say year four and they're talking about the same event. So I I know in the old days, uh, there were some Bible teachers that tried to fix this by saying, well, maybe Daniel was talking about when Nebuchadnezzar started his campaign uh, and, and Jeremiah was talking about when it ended nine months later. But that really doesn't make a lot of sense because he started his campaign against Egypt. doesn't really have anything to do with Israel. And when they got up to Israel at the end, that happened pretty quick. That fell apart. So that really didn't hold water. And, and so uh, it, it was a problem. It, it was a conundrum that, uh, that critics loved to point out and Christians kind of cringed at. Until archaeological research unearthed a, a, a fascinating discovery about Babylon. They're doing some work up there in, in Iraq around where Babylon is and this type of thing. And it turns out that the Babylonians have an interesting way uh, of enumerating a king's reign. The first year is called the ascension year, and that didn't count in their numbering system. So you had the ascension year, and then after that you had year one, two, three, etc., uh, so what would be year three to a Babylonian would be year four to everybody else. Well, since Daniel, as we're going to see next week as we get into this, he was carted off as a young man probably around, well, we'll get into that next, next week. Uh, he, uh, uh, he's carted off as a young man. He was trained and taught and learned in the Babylonian system. So when he looked at it, he would have gone ascension year, year one, two, three. Jeremiah, who was living and prophesying out of Jerusalem at this time, would have, you know, looked at his fingers, one, two, three, four, yep, year four, and he would have put that down. And it all makes perfect sense once you have the right information. There are a number of things in the Bible, these supposed contradictions between, like, like this one between Daniel and Jeremiah or other ones that, that, that crop up here and there in the Bible that just don't seem to make sense at first glance. And these are the types of things that, that people want to focus on when they say, oh, the Bible's untrustworthy, it's in error, it's got full of errors, you can't trust it. But the truth is, it's our understanding that is in error. Time and again, archaeology uh, makes discoveries that that clears up these supposed problems, and they confirm the accuracy and the reliability of the Bible. And and that's a great thing for us, isn't it? You can trust the Word of God. You can trust what it says, even if you haven't got it figured out yet, or, or, or you can't quite put it together. You can trust it for life and you can trust it for eternity. I mean, that's an awesome thing, isn't it? You can trust the Word of God. Now, one final point for today, let's look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So I want to look at what's happening on a human level. Well, well, I mean, what was happening in Nebuchadnezzar is going on at the human level, and I tell you, I can tell you what was happening with Nebuchadnezzar. It's easy to figure out if you remember a cartoon from back in the '90s called Pinky and the Brain. Great cartoon. If, If you're not familiar with Pinky and the Brain. You should be. Uh, and, and, and so Pinky and the Brain were, were laboratory mice. And, and uh, at, at the end of the day when all the scientists left the lab, they were left there at night alone. And the, the, every episode would start exactly the same way because Pinky uh, would say, uh, um, Hey Brain, what do you want to do tonight? And Brain would always answer, The same thing we do every night. Try to take over the world, okay? Well, okay, that was Nebuchadnezzar uh, and his dad, Nabopolassar. They were taking over the world. That's what they were doing. And and they had taken care uh, of smaller nations around them to build up their strength, and then they went after the big dogs and got rid of Assyria and Egypt, and now they were on their way home to consolidate their power. And who lay in the path on the way home? Judah. Well, we might as well take over Judah on the way home. And uh, they laid siege against Jerusalem Uh, because of the might of their army. It was a very short siege. They soon had Jerusalem captured. Uh, They took some of the items from the temple and a few of the cream of the crop Uh, people for captives, uh, uh, among whom was Daniel, and again, we'll see that next week. Uh, Unlike the Assyrians, they didn't wipe everything out and scatter everybody and kill a bunch of people and scatter them. Instead, they just uh, did enough to exert their influence, took some of the best of the best and then some of the riches, and they left everything else because they wanted a functioning country when they left. You know why? Because functioning countries get you money. And and so they would levy a great big tribute, otherwise known as taxes, against these uh, countries after they left. And so they left Jerusalem there, uh, the king there uh, as his vassal, and and left most of the stuff there so that people could uh, make money and send it to them. And they would only wipe out problem countries. Well, guess what? Israel was a problem country. And so a few years later, Nebuchadnezzar has come back, Uh, did a little bit more damage, said, come on, guys, get in line. They didn't get in line, so it comes back a third time in 586 B.C., and at that point, wipes them out, okay? Only left the poorest of the poor in the land. That's what happened on the human level. But did you notice what verse 2 says? The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. See, that, that reminds us that God is sovereign in the affairs of men. Nebuchadnezzar would have never taken Jerusalem if it was not part of God's plan. He was all puffed up and thinking it was all about Him, but it was not. God had a plan and a purpose in all of these things. In this particular case, he was fulfilling, using Babylon to fulfill the, the prophecies that he had had. He, they were his rod of judgment against Judah for their rebellion, just as Isaiah had prophesied 100 years earlier. Now, that doesn't mean that God was forsaking his, his chosen people, the, the people of, uh, of Israel. He made a promise to them that in 70 years they would return to the land. And, and we'll get to see how that works out as we go because it happened as God said it would. And here's the thing you got to know about Daniel before we even get into looking at him and his character. Uh, there's two main themes that run through the book of Daniel. God is in control and God is a God who keeps His promises. And because Daniel understood and believed those things, and therefore lived his life based on those truths, he was able to live a life of character and conviction. And some bad stuff happened in Daniel's life. We'll start seeing that next week. But even in that bad stuff, God was at work, and Daniel trusted that God was in control and that God would keep His promises. So the same is true for us. On the human level things may be really bad. It may may look like Nebuchadnezzar is coming in, marching right into your life and destroying everything. But you can go back to verse 2, where it says, the Lord gave. And you can understand that God is in control. And, and, and these bad things, whatever it might be, that might come into your life, they are not just some random, meaningless, uh, hopeless event. God has a plan and a purpose. God is in control even when the armies of wickedness sweep in to your life. And He is at work for your good. So as we begin this study, three simple but powerful truths that we need to keep in mind. Number one, our faith is bolstered and built on reasonable, verifiable evidences. Number two, the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. Even in the parts where you can't immediately understand it or reconcile it, and number three, God is sovereign and in control. And if you keep those things in mind, you can live a life of character and conviction, just like Daniel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word We thank You for the lives of the men and women of faith in the Bible that we can look to, we can read and study, and we can learn from. God, we we do want to have strong character and conviction to be able to stand firm in a world that so often pushes against Your truth. So Lord, help us to understand these things. That your word is reliable in our lives, that our faith is built on verifiable um, realities, historical truths, and that you are a God who is sovereign over nations and over men. So thank you, God, for these things. Amen.